0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I am your host, Samantha Long, for the New Books Network, Russia and Eurasian Studies channel. Today we're talking with Yoram Gorlitsky about the book he co-authored, Substate Dictatorship, Network, Loyalty, and Institutional Change in the Soviet Union. So, Yoram, would you like to say a couple of words about yourself?
1: Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Samantha. Yes, um, despite my rather exotic name, I was born in London and, apart from a a short spell in Israel, was raised and educated in England. Uh, I began my PhD more or less exactly when Mikhail Gorbachev came to power, and it was the excitement around perestroika that really drew me to learning Russian and to the study of Soviet politics. Um, although my doctorate was in a school of social sciences, my research topics have always been historical, and it's that creative tension between being in a social sciences department and studying historical topics, which is, I think, reflected in this book.
0: So let's start with some basic definitions. How do you define substate dictatorship, and why is this topic worthy of study?
1: Okay, well, I'll take um, those sort of questions in order. In terms of definition, uh, a sub-state dictatorship is a a local or regional dictatorship that is lodged in a statewide authoritarian regime. Uh, Broadly speaking, a dictatorship is a regime whose rulers come to power by means other than competitive elections, and this applies both at the state and sub-state levels. In the book, we then go beyond this by applying other recent findings in the theory of dictatorship to the the Soviet case.
0: And so why is this topic really important to study?
1: Well, there is, I think, an understandable fascination around the world with leaders and in particular with the personality of dictators in our view, however, this can only take you so far. We believe that in order to understand how dictatorship really works, we need to find out what's going on within the state and to penetrate its inner workings. And in a country as large as the Soviet Union, these were predominantly located at the, at the local level.
0: So Getty wrote a book um, not too long ago called Practicing Stalinism, Bolsheviks, Boyers, and the Persistence of Tradition. Which also looks at these sort of regional power networks and patron client relationships. How does your work, uh, mesh with his? Do you challenge some of his ideas? Do you expand on some of his thoughts? Well, in
1: in the book, we do engage quite fully with with Getty's work, which does appear several times in the bibliography. But uh, practicing Stalinism offers arguments which are are so much at variance with our findings that engaging with it would have taken us on a major detour. So perhaps this is actually a good opportunity for us to spell out what, what the differences are. First of all, Getty sees quite major continuities in types of regime and political practice over time, ones which run through centuries, connecting the Middle Ages and the and the Stalin era. We think, see things very differently. We posit a, a fundamental break between pre-revolutionary forms of monarchical dictatorship and the one-party dictatorship that existed under the Bolsheviks. Institutions and everyday working practices were, in other words, as far as we can see them, fundamentally different. Uh, secondly, Getty believes that patrimonial practices took precedence over institutional ones in the Soviet era. We argue this is really quite wrong. The Soviet system, in our view, was highly institutionalized. It's just a matter of working out exactly what these institutions were and discerning the institutional patterns that were inscribed in, in everyday life. Getty uses primarily Weberian categories, like. of rational bureaucracy and patrimonial leadership. We use a completely different set of categories drawn from the literature in comparative social science, categories which we believe better enable us to compare the Soviet system with um, other political systems.
0: So do you disagree with his idea that there were family circles that ruled in the regions and that these sort of personal trust relationships were important?
1: Um, yes, we, we think that um, that there were um, networks, but that um, it's it's wrong to see networks um, as kind of uniform um, and as we're taking the same, or assuming the same form in, in every region. We believe that it's quite possible to um, compare varieties from region to region. And that's one of the things that we try to do. That we try to do in the book. Um, We also think that the kinds of networks that existed in the Soviet era were really fundamentally different from the the networks that that we find in in earlier periods. And they're very closely connected to the the organization of the states and to the the rhythms of state campaigns um, and to the the nature of the party at the local level and party apparatus and, and so forth.
0: So you do talk about the devolution of power from Moscow, particularly from Stalin to these regional bodies, you know simply because of the size of the Soviet Union you know Moscow cannot control everything uh, what sort of checks and balances did Stalin use to keep regional bosses and these sort of family circles in check
1: yeah, I mean he had and in this sense, we find that stalin um was actually much more kind of methodical in terms of his his understanding of the relationship between the center and the provinces than than, than any of his successors um so um it, he's actually understands that it's a problem and he understands that you need kind of institutional devices to deal with it and he comes up with with a number of number of devices, the most important of which are probably um, regional party elections, which uh, provide him with information about things that are are going wrong within, um, within the regions, as far as the center is concerned. They provide him with very, very valuable information about the, the inner workings of the regional um, party apparatus.
0: Could you explain that? Because most people view Soviet elections in general as fake. They think that they have just simply a slate of pre-approved candidates and that they are meaningless. How would party elections provide Stalin with information?
1: So um, w- what you have from 1947 onwards are, are regional party elections where um, uh, members of the, the OBCOM and the delegates who are sent to the regional party conferences um, are, are given a, a list of um of candidates now they have no choice so um it's not as if they can choose between um, rival candidates for a position but what they could do was to to reject a candidate and what we found was that in the elections the regional party elections of 1947 and 1948 um there were quite a large number of, of regions where you had major rebellions um, very often they were directed at the regional party first secretary, but sometimes also at um, uh, at other party secretaries or even um, the chair of the regional um, executive committee or other um, local notables and, and, and dignitaries. And this provided the, the centre with information that something was going on in the region. Um, uh, and it, it, it very often this information departed from the 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 official line that the the region was was following. And as a result, the centre would very often send out um, uh, brigades to check up on what was going on. And in some cases, they would actually fire um, a regional secretary, possibly even a regional first secretary, if they performed particularly badly in in these elections. So they were, this is one of the findings of the book, these elections were actually very important um, and very meaningful, uh, so meaningful that regional party secretaries change their behaviour in, in response to them. And we know that because, um, first of all, we can see that um, in terms of their, their speeches and their relationships with the obcoms. But also it's very interesting that the, that the number of rebellions uh, diminishes from 1947, 1948 onwards. And we think this is partly Um, as a result of of their their response to these signals that they're getting from the local party committees.
0: I'm actually not really surprised by this, because when I look at the uh, Constitution and the subsequent elections in 36 and 37, at the local level, people are encouraged to vote out people who are grossly incompetent or otherwise not doing their job. And Stalin does actually encourage this. So Getting using these elections as signals to who is doing their job poorly appears to go back to at least 36. Um, but you say they change their behavior. These obkom first secretaries are they changing their behavior in relation to their subordinates? Are they changing their behavior on how they implement state policy? What changes exactly are they making to avoid losing their jobs?
1: Yeah, so it's, it's, it's both, really. Um, I think the, the most important thing is that um, in the immediate aftermath of the war, um, they're quite um, kind of unforgiving, quite brutal in terms of their relationship, in particular to the RICOM um, first secretaries. Uh, and when these RICOM first secretaries and, and other members of the, the wider re- regional elite begins to kind of vote against them, sometimes in large numbers, they realise that they need to come to some kind of accommodation um, with, uh, uh, with, with the first secretaries, with the RICOM first secretaries and, um, and very often other officials from the RICOMs. And so they, they, they actually um, they come to compromises with them um, and they also soften their language. Um, they become um, a little bit less relentless, I suppose, in terms of their... Um, their implementation of certain campaigns because they realize they, they need to keep these, these local leaders on side.
0: And so is it a realization that the local leaders simply don't have the resources to implement these campaigns?
1: I think that's that's less of an issue for them. I think what they want um, is because they, they always know that the local leaders don't have the resources, um, but they still needs to to meet their targets which is to say that the regional leaders need to meet their targets Um, but but what they realize is they need to come to some kind of compromise with them because if they don't then they will tattle they'll defect the center they will inform the center of um various things that are going on in the region but particularly through these elections
0: so are they creating essentially protection networks where if you don't snitch on me, I won't snitch on you and Moscow will never know we didn't actually do this?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what they want to do. Uh, it does, doesn't always work out that way. What we find is that probably the most important thing for them is to, is to keep the, their inner circle um, in line because the inner circle, the members of the, the regional um, party bureau, are privy to information, um, which could be very, very damaging to them. Um, and that's probably their most important goal um, in maintaining their, their regional political regimes. So there, what, one of the things we show in the book is that there is a there is a kind of systemic difference in terms of their relationship to local elites, which is to say to their local inner circles and... Um, uh, their relationship with the the Reichland party secretaries who are kind of one level below
0: and of course moscow's role in all of this is to find what they're hiding right to more effectively manage the um, information they're getting and the implementation of policy so this would really put the regional elites and moscow at odds would it not well
1: um <laughs> One of the things that we argue in the book is that, by and large, um, Moscow is quite happy to leave most regional le- leaders to their own discretion. Um, uh, so that regional leaders on the whole are, are allowed to run their regions as they see fit for normally a fixed term of around five or six years. And it's, it's this that allows them to become um, uh, substate dictators. It's only if the regional leader does something which is particularly bad, particularly egregious, that that, uh, Moscow will will intervene. And we give one or two examples of this, and sometimes it will be in response to, um, to an electoral revolt because this will be a signal to the center that something has gone fundamentally wrong in the region.
0: So is this different from the 30s when Moscow really did care, particularly if people were not implementing policy successfully? I see this with the Constitution where they send in rebukes that they were not gathering you know information the the suggestions and stuff correctly, and that Moscow was not receiving these in a timely manner. You see this with other campaigns where um you know they they're not pleased with the way things are being implemented and they start you know this is what getty argues is the root of the purges is, is that Mo- moscow is not getting a responsive you know action from these regional committees does this change
1: oh yes yeah i mean it, i think there are uh, there are certain continuities so moscow is very very interested in ensuring that um that the plans are implemented and um, that the policies are are, are carried through, um, but there are there are important differences. I mean, of course, in the 1930s, and I suppose this is one area where we would really disagree with, um, uh, with 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 Getty. Uh, the centre is very keen to um, uh, it, certainly by the end of the 1930s to to implement um, to excuse me to um, uh, to purge these regional leaders because they present a potential threat to um, to the center and to Stalin particularly in the event of a war that that isn't an issue by the late 19, 1940s because these leaders are, are much younger they're much more junior and this is a very it's a very traditional society um, so they don't really pose a threat to to Stalin in any kind of major way uh, i think the continuity lies in the fact that um the centre is still very interested in making sure that the campaigns that the policies are, are implemented. Um, what it doesn't want is for, their, for the, the campaigns to be implemented on paper, but in fact on the ground, a lot of the things that um, regional leaders are, claim to be happening aren't really happening. That, that's the thing that they, they want to use, among other things, the regional party le- elections as sources of information about these um, goings-on in the regions.
0: That's always the issue with the Soviet bureaucracy, though, isn't it? That, you know, what exists on paper and what happens in real life are often not at all the same thing.
1: <laughs> sure, yeah. I mean, what, what we find is that over time, um, there are a number of kind of institutional practices which, um, which uh, become kind of consolidated. Um, and, and these don't really exist in the, in the mid-1930s, but they become consolidated by the late 1940s. Early 1950s, and these are designed precisely in order to to narrow down the wriggle room that's available to local leaders um, uh, to you know to falsify statistics um, to make out that that plans are, are being implemented, where, whereas in fact they aren't. So by the, by the late 1940s, the system has become much more institutionalized than it had been um, in, in the 30s in that regard.
0: Are those measures actually effective, though? Because you certainly write, for example, about Riazan, which I know is a little bit later in the Khrushchev era, where that is a massive falsification of statistics. (laughs) Um, I mean, he's essentially at that point buying meat products and then running them through as if you're meeting like extra meat quotas and stuff.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. So are these measures effective,
1: Yeah. Um, If if you compare Stalin and Khrushchev, what we would argue is that um, that Stalin's devices are are much, much more effective than either Khrushchev's or or Brezhnev's, Um, because Stalin seems to have a much better understanding of of how this regime works, um, how the political system works than, than Khrushchev does. And it's to that end that he sets up all these... Institutional mechanisms to control um, regional elites. What Khrushchev does, and the the scandal that you're referring to, is um, in the. So it takes place in 1960, is to dismantle all these control mechanisms, and we argue that that is an absolute disaster um, because uh, Khrushchev fails to understand. the kind of fundamental truth about this system, which is that um you can't rely on regional leaders both to, to implement um policies and to tell the truth about whether they've been implemented. That you need you need third party agencies, um, truth tellers, honest brokers to provide this information. And what Khrushchev does is to dismantle all of these, which um which is a, a, an absolute catastrophe. And that leads in um, the late 1950s to um, a pandemic of falsification um, and and fraud, which um, we can't be absolutely certain about this, but it appears to us to be on a far greater scale than at any other point in, in Soviet
0: history. So other than regional elections, what other mechanisms did Stalin implement to keep an eye on regional leaders? And, you know, make sure they were doing what they said they were doing? Yeah.
1: um, There are two other kinds of mechanisms that we look at in the book. The first um, are are the rotations. So um, what you have is a system where regional leaders are given more or less absolute power to run their regions as they saw fit, but only for a particular period, only for a fixed term of normally around five to six years. And then, Um, resuming a policy which had first been introduced in in the 1920s, um, you have a kind of mechanism for rotating leaders from one region to another. And that's one way of of controlling these leaders and making sure that their connection to, um, uh, to local networks doesn't become overly sort of nepotistic. The other um, mechanism, the third type of mechanism are uh, various institutions such as the Ministry of State Control and the Party Control Commission, um, which again are consolidated um, a- and become kind of entrenched in the late Stalin era and what Khrushchev does uh, disastrously um, is to um, uh, is to undercut these institutions um, and um, to try and to devolve as much power as possible to um to regional party leaders and and we think this in terms of his ability to um to control what's going on at the regional level this this is a this is a catastrophe
0: why would khrushchev make that decision to devolve power
1: yeah um it, Khrushchev had a very kind of childlike and quite naive understanding of of how organisations work. Um, So he responded to bureaucracy um, in in, in a very um, kind of common sense way. I think his idea was that one should deal with it simply by um, removing paperwork. Um, And the best way of doing this was to transfer power from the the central ministries and the central party organizations, which had um, become um, kind of uh, overwhelmed with with bureaucracy um, and transfer power to the region, so he thought this would be enough, but it was based on a on a fundamental misunderstanding of of how institutions how organizations actually function and by contrast um, Stalin was actually much more um, uh, much more had a much better understanding, much better sort of sense of the internal dynamics of institutions, and this probably goes back to Stalin's own experience um, in in the Central Committee in the nineteen twenties.
0: So, how does the mechanism? Could you give us a time frame of these changes in the mechanisms of regional governments? Because there is sort of a messy transition from Stalin's death to actually Malenkov than to Khrushchev as far as you know, state power goes. How is this reflected in change to regional governments?
1: Yeah, I mean, we argue, we have a kind of a chapter in the book which looks at the interregnum between, between Stalin and, uh, and Khrushchev. And, and we argue that there was a short period of around, well, a few months when you had two um, kind of rival um, models of governance, one represented by by Khrushchev, which was basically a, a kind of a form of governance that's based on party rule, um, and the other that's championed by Beria, who in effect is relying on the local committees, local leadership of the Ministry of Internal Affairs, which itself depends on various forms of compromise in order to, to run the country. And,
0: Would you like to explain what compromat is for a non-rushing speaking listeners? Sure, yes.
1: Um, so, compromat is just the use of compromising materials, so any information that can be used to, to discredit um, an individual in the light of author- the authorities. Um, uh, 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 to discredit an individual um, uh, against... Uh, hello, I'm sorry. Um, to discredit an individual... Um, Uh, So, for example, in the the, the late Stalin era, um, one of the favoured forms of compromise was um, to show that an individual was associated with some kind of oppositional activity. It could be Trotskyists or it could be emigres or um, uh, it could be whites from the Civil War. Um, uh, And one of the things that we argue is that under Khrushchev, you get a, um, a transition from relying on... Compromat, which was based on um, association with oppositional activity, to a new form of compromat that was based on um, involvement in, in the repressions under Stalin. So, compromat is basically the use of of information that can be used to discredit, um, usually a, a rival uh, within the leadership.
0: Okay. And you also note that the uh, regional cadre makeup changes significantly from the 1930s through the 1950s. And this isn't necessarily surprising, given the repressions of the 30s and then the massive death toll of World War II. But why is this important?
1: Yeah, um, what we argue is that there are two main kind of changes that, um, that take place from the 1930s to the 1950s. Um, So first of all, there's um, a greater seniority of of person, as we call it. This means that the higher you are in the regional party hierarchy, the more likely you you were to be older and to have greater levels of expertise and, and education. And this is quite different from the situation in the late 30s when the highest regional leaders were normally very young and relatively inexperienced. And secondly, there was seniority of office. This meant that one's position in the hierarchy was carefully calibrated with levels of pay and prestige. So from the 30s to the 50s, the system has become increasingly stratified and, and hierarchical. Why is this important? Um, these two changes were significant because they were associated with the consolidation of status hierarchies. And beyond what happens with institutions, which is one of the things that we're primarily interested in, um, in, in the book. Um, it's these changes in society that are probably the most important driver behind the new type of, of regional regime that emerges in the 60s and, and 70s.
0: Okay, another focus of your book is sub-state nationalism, which I think is quite interesting. Uh, how do you define that? And how is it different from older Stalinist-era programs such as which also produce a ruling class in minority publics, primarily made up of members of these minorities who also often had nationalistic ambitions.
1: Yeah, um, and the nationalism is the articulation of demands for, for ethnic self-government at the regional or sub-state rather than the state-wide level. Um, so in that sense, a um, karenizatia, which involves the kind of cultivation Um, of of local elites and the promotion of local languages, local constitutions, um, uh, is something that actually works um, against um, sub-state dictatorship, uh, sub-state nationalism. Um, So colonization and sub-state nationalism um, originally um, uh, were, were moving kind of opposite direction opposite directions. Karanizatia was an attempt by the regime to, to prevent sub-state nationalism. Um, but we also acknowledge that the two were connected. And alongside an earlier generation of scholars, we argue that over the long term, Karanizatia um, did actually contribute to, um, to sub-state nationalism.
0: And what, uh, nations isn't probably quite the right word, but what republics were uh, these nationalistic feelings or movements particularly strong in?
1: So in the mid-50s, probably the most radical cases were Azerbaijan and and Latvia, where sub-state national movements focused on on the issue of language. But one could also point to what one might think of, and I I sympathize with you when it comes to the terminology, but you could think of them as proto-national movements in, in Georgia in 1956, in Lithuania in the 1970s, as well as in some other republics such as Ukraine and and Armenia.
0: And what form did sub-state nationalism take? Was it only agitation for greater linguistic rights, or were there other aspects as well?
1: Yeah, um, I, I, in the mid 1950s, the main focus um, was uh, was language, um, but, but you do get other examples. So. Um, in uh, in georgia in 1956 the, the attacks on stalin um are interpreted by many georgians as as a slight on the um, the georgian nation um and there is an argument that um that the demonstrations um uh, against khushash secret, secret speech in 1956 uh, are a kind of the first flickerings, the first signs of a, a proto-national movement in in, in Georgia. In, in other areas, you get um, it might not be a particular individual or even the language, but it might be um, uh, the ethnic group's history um, or its its kind of culture more broadly that um, that comes up for for scrutiny and perhaps the the indigenous or the local ethnic group will campaign on behalf of of kind of raising the profile of the the local culture, the local ethnic culture, um, uh, or or perhaps kind of playing up um, the ethnic group's role in in a major historical event, such as the the Second World War.
0: So how did these republics also use nationalist discourse to resolve internal problems? Because you do talk about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, w- w- we argue that the Republic bureaucracies were in a bit of a bind. Um, to keep Moscow happy, they had to toe the party line. At the same time, in order to have some kind of semblance of credibility with local elites and the broader population, they needed to communicate in, in an idiom the local population could understand and relate to. And this sometimes meant promoting the local language or trumpeting one's local history and culture. This tension was was ultimately kind of irresolvable. We don't argue that local elites used nationalist discourse to resolve internal policy problems. more they used national mobilization as a means of of bolstering their own position. If that meant resolving internal policy problems, then, then so much the better.
0: And how did this shift to a nationalist discourse affect their relationship with Moscow?
1: Yeah, I mean, th- there was a kind of a gradual shift over time. Um, I-, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to say that there was actually a shift towards a nationalist discourse. I don't think that would have been permitted by um, uh, um, by Moscow, but um, I- it-, it was perhaps a, a national discourse. Um, and w- what we find is that um, the republics and republic- Republican elites. Um, that they had to, to tread very carefully because on the one hand, they wanted to keep Moscow on side, but on the other hand, if they were going to do their, their job properly, they needed the cooperation um, of the local population, and they could only do that if they um, uh, expressed themselves in a local idiom that um, the local population could relate to and, and, and understand.
0: So it seems to me that you've noted that a lot of these tendencies and problems begin with Khrushchev. You talked specifically about his de-Stalinization being a a sticky wicket in uh, Georgia. Did his anti-colonial policies in any way embolden these sort of proto-nationalist discourses?
1: Well, it's it's, it's difficult to be absolutely certain because what – what happens under under Khrushchev is that for a while he continues the the policies that had been um, supported by, by Beria in his bid for power, which rely to a greater extent on um, on colonization or indigenization, um, because he it, this is part of his kind of attempt to, um, to kind of to wind down the Stalinist system and to, to lower levels of repression um, and to to, um, to make sort of communication um, uh, uh, and um, uh, uh, the ability to publish a little bit easier in the mid-1950s. But in 1959, there is a kind of, he comes to a crunch point where he realises that this is all getting out of hand. Um, and it's at that stage that he... Um, he authorizes a a purge in in Latvia. Um, And there is a kind of a a change in in position. There's a change in direction in terms of the regime's nationalities policy, but it's not as, eventually it's not as pronounced as it looks if it would be um, from the perspective of 1959,
0: 1960. When you say purge, though, you don't mean Stalinist purge where people get shot. Right?
1: No, no, that's right. Yeah, you don't. I mean, that's one of the one of the kind of important kind of long term developments. That, that we actually find that already in the Stalin era, um, that there's um, in terms of regional elites, there's much much less of a chance of of blood purges of people being executed and and arrested if they're members of um, uh, of uh, a regional political elite.
0: Well, I'm sure they find that comforting. <laughs> well, yeah,
1: I mean it, I think from the perspective I think there were very very high levels of fear clearly in the late 19 late 1940s, but if one looks at the the actual dynamics um of uh of political rule, then then what you get, and this is one of the things that we tried to describe in um in chapters 2 and 3, the emergence of practices um uh, at the from, from the bottom up, which um, are used to protect um, regional elites from kind of ons- onslaughts from the centre. I and I should also say that I, I don't think it would be right, you know, to to blame Khrushchev entirely for everything that went wrong. I mean, a lot of the kind of the the underlying problems um, uh, were there as, as it were from the very beginning, and they were they were clearly there also in. In the Stalin era, so there were there were there were many things about how Stalin kind of ruled the country, whatever one thinks about it from a kind of moral point of view that were just completely unsustainable. So I think Khrushchev realized that he needed to do some things different, but unfortunately he made some some catastrophic errors
0: yeah, i wouldn't necessarily say I would blame him. I just think it's interesting to look at how Things change. Uh, I mean, Stalin, even with the blood purges, was not successful at getting a responsive bureaucracy that implemented policy the way they were supposed to. You just end up with a bunch of dead people and bureaucracy that still doesn't work. Um,
1: so. Sure. Yeah. I mean, in general, one of the kind of the overall arguments that we make is that, um, in particular, in terms of the relationship between the center and the regions. Um, There's actually a lot of continuity between um, the Stalin and Khrushchev eras in the sense that um, both Stalin and Khrushchev place regional leaders under extraordinary um, amounts of pressure. Whereas the real kind of, the real change, the real cutoff point is um, in the early 1960s between Khrushchev and Brezhnev. In a sense, what Brezhnev says is. you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to go easy a little bit on regional leaders and um, I'm going to, to lower some of the pressure that you've been experiencing um, and create kind of higher levels of, of certainty and continuity at the, the regional level.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, it seems to me that many of the demands on regional leaders were impossible. And that is some of the reason you see for things like falsification. So would we like to talk about uh you know Khrushchev's reform, his devolution, and you know, why these things failed, perhaps by looking specifically at Riazon? Because I think that's a very interesting example. Um, and I loved your article on it, by the way.
1: Thanks. Yeah. Um I mean Razan is, is a very um interesting case. Um and actually we argue that it it's um really a turning point. Um in um, over the whole period, you know, from, um, from the mid-1940s to the, uh, the mid-1970s. Um, what happens there is that you get um, a trust network that emerges um, between uh, uh, La Riona, the first secretary in Razan, and a group of, of local first secretaries and a couple of members of his um, uh, OBCOM bureau. And this forms over over a decade. Um, And it's this this trust network, relatively high levels of trust between Larionov and and this kind of coterie, this inner clique, that enables the really massive levels of um, of falsification that you get in in, in Razan. by contrast, you know, when we look at, um, at Kirov, uh, <laughs> which I, I know, Samantha, is where where you are at the moment, um, you get a leader who, who's much more in the mould of the classic st- um, Stalinist sub-state dictator. So he's just applying kind of very high levels of pressure, relentlessly, on on the um, the RICOM secretaries. And that means I... very, it's very difficult for him to... Um, to establish relations of trust um, with, uh, with these leaders. And, and it means that when he himself has to, to falsify and has to um, to lie um, on, on behalf, as it were, of the plan, um, he, he, he can't get um, the leaders to, to go along with him because they just don't trust him. So um, there's a marked contrast between... Riazan and Kirov, um, Kirov examples in, the, in that regard.
0: Well, I got the impression that a lot of that was personal. That in Riazan, the first secretary was actually a pretty decent guy. People actually liked him. You have photographs, for example, of his funeral when he committed suicide. Of you know just masses of people, you know, coming out to still support him. Whereas I got the impression the guy in Kirov was what we might colloquially call a douche. <laughs> that he was, in general, not a nice person, and so you know this personality was really important. Yeah, I mean,
1: I, to be honest, we're kind of reluctant to go down down that route because um, we we don't think it's simply a matter of um, you know of, of personality. If you look at, um, at, at Larionov in Lausanne, in, in the mid nineteen fifties, um, sometimes he, he he could occasionally behave very badly um, towards um, uh, towards his subordinates. And in order to fulfil the nineteen um, the nineteen fifty nine plan, um, you had a kind of reversion to the to the raids to the raids and the strong arm tactics of the nineteen thirties. Um, and that's not, I think, commensurate with the idea of him as a nice guy. Um, so I don't think, in general, what we're not really trying to do is to reduce this all to a matter of, you know, of character or individual psychology, um, but rather to the kind of the dynamics as they um, evolve over time, the relationships between, um, uh, between a first secretary and members of, of, of his inner elite or members of the wider elite, the RICOM secretaries, um, and that, that's not really a matter of, uh, of, of niceness, but it's a matter of, of a strategy for all. And in that regard, we think that, um, that Larionovs is very, very different from Chelyakovs, the, the first secretary in, in, in Kirov.
0: Would you mind telling our listeners what exactly they were falsifying, how badly it was falsified and why they would do that?
1: Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, it's quite a kind of um, an involved story. But um, towards the end of 1958, um, Khrushchev announces um, for the first time there's going to be a, a seven-year plan rather than a five-year plan with extraordinarily ambitious targets um, right across the board. But in particular, in uh, in one or two areas, including... Um, the, uh, the procurement targets for, for meat. And the reason for this was that it was important for Khrushchev to try and um, match the United States, um, uh, which was at the time the main kind of uh, geopolitical rival to, to the Soviet Union. So um, Khrushchev begins by sending an emissary to, um, to Razan to negotiate with the first secretary there to increase the, um, the plan, threefold, from 50,000 tonnes to 150,000 tonnes uh, of, of meat. And um, what that involves um, is a whole range of completely perverse and irrational practices, such as going to Moscow and buying up meat in uh, in stores, sometimes in secondary markets, but also... Um, there's a lot of falsification. So um, sometimes you'll have um, meat that is double counted. Um, so uh, in um, in certain areas, you'll get meat that is slaughtered this year being counted for the following year as well, or meat that is being fattened up this year um, being counted towards the, the next year's target. Um, and in other cases, and this is the most sort of extreme form of falsification, you get um the uh, uh the fabrication the complete fabrication of documents um referring to the meat that simply didn't exist
0: did they stand any chance of actually implementing the plan had they worked hard and grown lots of cows and pigs and sheep was this something that they could have done without falsification
1: no no that it would i mean to to go from 50,000 tons to 150,000 was um uh you know it, it, it wasn't utopian it was a completely mad mad idea um that there was no way um it, given the um the cattle reserves in the region that that, that could have been achieved uh and it, you know it's it's an interesting moment because a lot of the the officials in Razan realized that this was this was a completely crazy idea um and what they also realized that it couldn't work in the long term because if you had a very high plan this year you'd need to have through the kind of what was known as the ratchet effect you need to have an even higher plan the next year and that was completely unsustainable um so no it, it could never have been achieved it, it has to be said and again this is one of the points we make in the book that when khrushchev is eventually toppled that um uh the the kind of refrain that you get in the um central committee plenum in 1964 the thing that keeps on coming up again and again is the Riz- Rizan scandal and how crazy it was, how mad it was, even to try to achieve it in the first place, but then also to support the um, uh, the levels of, of deception at the regional level um, that, uh, um, that had been the case in you know in nineteen sixty So um, so no, it, it was it, it was completely kind of impractical idea, and it could it could never really been it could never really been achieved this this particular goal.
0: That's sort of what I thought. You see this in the 30s, too, when I look at, you know, Kirov RICOM secretaries, you know, they're implementing flax plans and stuff that they simply, there's no way that they have grown that much flax. And so they do things like breaking into people's houses and stealing the flax out of their comforters, or sending them to the collective farm market to buy flax and turn it in as if they've grown it. So this is not necessarily new. Um, and I, I do think it is a result of the absolutely irrational demands placed on them. Yeah, I
1: mean, it, uh, Mark Harrison, um, a, a scholar at Warwick, uh, wrote a very interesting article trying to uh, assess levels of falsification over time. And, of course, falsification you know, is, is kind of it's woven into the fabric of, the, of the, Soviet, the Soviet economic system and political system. But what he shows is, is that there is a, really a massive increase in the 1950s and it reached, reaches a crescendo um, in 1960. So although you get, this, you get this in the 30s, you get this in the 60s, you get this in the 70s and 80s, that there is something that happens in this period that leads um, uh, to a, a kind of to just a, a, a steep rise um, and eventually the, the catastrophe in, in, in Rizam.
0: So, do you think the Riazan scandal directly contributed to Khrushchev's downfall?
1: Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I think it's really at that point that um, that you get a turning um, uh, against him on the part of the the Central Committee Presidium, because what they know is that he's lied. Um, wh- what he claims at the beginning of 1961 is that. Um, that Razan should never have, um, have even come up with this idea um, uh, of, of three plans, um, but it, it should have stuck to two plans. And, and I, ha- I have to say that was, from, from his point of view, it was completely outrageous because they, the only reason they went for three plans was because they were put under impossible pressure from him to do that. Um, but what members of the presidium actually discovered was that um, Razan. Even with all the pressure that was applied to it, only supplied sixty thousand tons. He could even he couldn't even get to hundred thousand, and so um, they realised that that basically Khrushchev, because he'd he'd invested, invested so much political capital in the Rosan campaign, and he'd been to Razan in February nineteen fifty nine, and he hosted a very glitzy reception for. Um, uh, Razan farmers and milkmaids and so on in December 1959, because he'd invested so much capital in this. Um, it, it really, really kind of eroded his credibility. And, and absolutely, yes, it did contribute to his downfall.
0: Did they also think he was a bit of an idiot for believing that they had successfully completed these plans?
1: Well, we don't know whether he actually believed that they did. I mean, I, I, he probably wasn't really that interested in whether they really did. Um, <laughs> I think what he wanted to do was at least to, to maintain the, the facade that they did. And, and there came a point in, um, in the autumn of 1960 when he realized that even that, even, even maintaining those sorts of lies was, was, was completely, um, completely unsustainable.
0: And so how does the Brezhnev period break from, you know, this Khrushchevian sort of Kafkaesque nightmare? You had mentioned that Brezhnev, you know, took it easier on the regional secretaries. Were there other important changes he implemented?
1: Yeah. Um, it, Brezhnev, um, first of all, he reduces reduces the pressure quite quite markedly um, on, on, on regional leaders. But then he embarks on um, a, a campaign for... The trust in cadres which involves um, giving uh, regional leaders much greater discretion to run uh, affairs as as they saw fit um, and then he does a couple of a couple of kind of closely related policies which he pursues um, the first is that he lets regional leaders stay in their region for as long as they want more or less so um, whereas under Stalin and Khrushchev, regional leaders normally would serve a term, a fixed term of around five years and then move on to another region. Um, under, um, under Brezhnev, you know, sometimes they'll stay in the same, uh, in the same oblast or the same cry for, for 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and alongside that, he does away with the policy of rotation, of kind of rotating these regional leaders from one region to another. Um, uh, and he also st- stops the previous practice of sending officials from the central committee to, um, uh, to lord it, to, to rule over, um, these, these regional party committees, another general kind of policy that he pursues is to, um, widen the, um, uh, the policy of indigenization. So he, um, he allows regional leaders to recruit from within their own regions, um, and to engage in a process of what we call homeland nationalism. So uh, even within the Russian Federation, regional leaders are um, allowed not so much to promote a separate language, but certainly um, uh, to promote kind of local history, local museums. Uh,
0: Krayovidnia?
1: A, a form of Kraivedinya, exactly. Um, uh, and and that again is something that's that's quite new. Um, and it involves um, a transfer and an enlargement of indigenization, which previously had been practiced only in the Union Republics, um, to the regional level within the Russian Republic uh, as well.
0: So what would you say the main takeaway you want our listeners to have from your book is?
1: Well, I think one of the main, um, the main points is that I think most people tend to think of, of dictatorship as um, political regimes in which leaders are all powerful and one of the things that we try to do in the book is to maintain um, a distinction between authoritarian regimes and democracies while acknowledging that for authoritarian regimes to work the leader no matter how powerful has to find some way of institutionalizing the transfer of, of power to regional leaders And secondly, we argue that in order to understand how dictatorships change, um, the key thing is not so much to focus on abrupt events or shocks, such as revolutions, wars, or the death of the dictator, but on how these regimes change from within. Um, And this is a process that occurs incrementally or or gradually. So we see that it already is beginning to happen under Stalin, and it's a process that cuts across the changes of administration um, in the Kremlin.
0: Well, thank you for coming and talking to us about your new book. Um, are you working on another project now or are you taking a little rest?
1: Yeah, no, yes, I've, I've got a couple of other projects. There's one um, on the, the Soviet legal system, actually, which um, ties in with with, uh, with your own work, Samantha, on um, constitutions and how they were interpreted by, um, by justice officials of the late 1950s, the late 1940s, early 50s and late 50s. And then there's another um, book that I'm, I'm working on with Oleg Krevniuk again. Um, we're, we're going to be looking at the, um, at the Brezhnev era and the, uh, the perestroika era. And we're looking at, uh, at the role of ideology and how
0: it changed. Well, those sound interesting. When you get them finished, let us know and we'd love to have you back again.
1: Thank you very much, Samantha. And thank you very much for, for ha- having me um, on, on the network.